welcome. My name is David. I am the pastor here, and uh, I am married to that one that just spoke. Uh, yeah, um, this morning, uh, I'm actually really excited because today we start a new series of messages. Uh, something new for this church, actually something new for me a pre- as a preacher, where we are doing a, a series titled At the Movies. And, and what we're doing is for the next four weeks, we are looking at movies that you guys probably have seen before, or I'm asking you to watch in your free time, uh, which is a pretty cool thing for a preacher to do, I would think, right? <laughs> Usually our requests are a lot harder than that, but uh, to go watch some movies. And, uh, and then what we're doing on Sunday morning is kind of thinking about them, reflecting on them, and seeing how uh, some of the themes of the movie speak to themes in the scripture. Uh, and, and today we kick it off with uh, the movie that was the blockbuster hit this last year, The Greatest Showman. Uh, I, I, I bet uh, if you saw it, you liked it. Uh, I bet if you haven't seen it yet, you will like it. And, uh, and I just want to say... Um, I am not the greatest showman. I'm probably not even a good showman, but we had a lot of fun with bad Photoshop in making this series. So there I am, uh, and that's my grill on, on Hugh Jackman's face, a little bit different. Uh, here is a picture of the real greatest showman's face. <clears throat> this is P.T. Barnum. He also looks a little different from uh, Hugh Jackman, uh, but uh, this movie was based on the life of this man. This is the Barnum from Barnum and Bailey Circus, which had a 146-year run that actually ended, I think, last year. And, uh, and, and this, uh, this fellow had a very interesting life, and some of this movie gives us a backstory to P.T. Barnum and the establishment of the circus that I think probably a lot of us had never known about before. It's based on a true story. But let me offer a little disclaimer here that I feel I am obligated to give you as a preacher. When I did a little fact-checking on this movie, I want to say, although it is based on a true story, it is very, very, very loosely based on a true story. Uh, This is not, the reality was not kind of the feel-good story that we get in the movie The Greatest Showman. P.T. Barnum and the circus had kind of a checkered past, and uh, and, and, um, this movie is really a 21st century rewrite of a reality that was a lot different. Uh, And I felt like I owed to say that to you all. I I care about historical accuracy as a preacher. I feel like I need to tell you that. But I also think that I need to tell you that I I don't think that lessens what we can learn from this movie today. Uh, You know, there are a lot of wonderful truths embedded in fictional works that have have opened my eyes to, to a lot of things I haven't necessarily seen before. All truth is God's truth. And what we're really interested in is is the way in which the greatest showman can push us to see some of the biblical truths, because that's where we're really staking our claim on God's word. That's what we're going to open up later, and the greatest showman just helps us to kind of see those truths in in a different light, and that's what we're doing this morning. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get rolling with the message this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for the chance to um, be here this morning, to worship you, to come together as a community, to... um, to, to, to tell you the things that are on our hearts, Lord, to open up our lives. And Lord, now we open up your word to, to say, would you speak to us? Would you, by your spirit, work uh, in each of our lives individually to help us hear the things that we need to hear? 
to inspire us to the things, the places where we need to be inspired. And, and, and Lord, to, to just again and again know your depth of love for us and your calling on our lives and your desire to see us be a part of the gospel, Lord. May, my, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, God, be pleasing to you this morning. You are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So have you all ever been in a situation in, in your life where you felt unwelcome or unwanted or just not good enough? You know, if you have, uh, I, I want to say this movie was written uh, to speak to those experiences, to deal with some of those feelings that, that we experience when we are in those situations in life. And it really centers and primarily follows those experiences of unwantedness, unwelcomeness, not good enoughness through the life of the central character, P.T. Barnum. Barnum is born into a working class family. And uh, his father appears, as we see in that scene that I, that I played, uh, to be some sort of tailor. Barnum looks like he is going to follow in his father's footsteps. This, this uh, movie is set in the 19th century, and young Barnum, like most young men in the 19th century, were expected to follow in the footsteps of their, their, their parents. Uh, so what he's doing is he's apprenticing under his father. He's helping him. He's learning the trade. There is just one problem. Uh, Barnum's not interested in being a tailor. This young man has a 21st century millennial heart, and, uh, and, and he has bigger a vision for what he wants to do with his life, right? He, uh, he, he, he wants to, to enter into a life of adventure and fun. He wants to find excitement. He, he, he's even interested in fame and fortune, as we'll see later on. But, uh, but, but it's not uh, his reality, right? And so as this song, uh, A Million Dreams, kind of kicks in, we, we get to see what he wants, what he desires. And then what happens is we also, in these opening scenes, see this big contrast that this is not the way that his life is going. What he experiences early on in life and actually all the way throughout the story is time and time again being unwelcomed, unwanted, not good enough, right? We see that firstly, where this, this young man is kind of flirting with this rich man's daughter uh, in that opening scene. And uh, he gets her in trouble and gets slapped in the face and is told, you know, don't have anything to do with my daughter. And actually, he will go on to marry that little girl and the father never accepts him as being good enough, right? Uh, later on in that same scene that we watched, right? Here's, here's this young man who had at least the stability of his own dad and yet it looks like his dad gets sick and dies. And, and he who has all these dreams is now orphaned to the streets. He ends up being a nuisance to other people in his town, just having to steal bread to eat, right? And then we didn't watch this in, in the scene, but if you see the movie, what, you'll, what you know later on happens is even when Barnum catches windfall and starts to successfully launch uh, this circus, there are voices and people in his life that say, you're not a real entertainer. You're not legitimate. You're never going to be good enough. And Barnum is, is, in, is in the middle of this the whole time. He's dealing with this internal reality, this internal kind of struggle that he has between his dreams and his experiences of being unwanted and unwelcome and just not good enough. But this movie also isn't about just, just P.T. Barnum. I think one of the things that, that makes it a very 
nice story is that uh, he, his, his experiences actually open him up to other people who have had the same experience. Uh, and and uh, I think that uh, the reason I included the end of that scene, it was a rather long clip, was because I wanted you guys to see that interaction with him and the lady, right? So here he is orphaned. He's stealing bread to eat. He gets run down after he gets it thrown up against the wall. He's just trying to eat, right? And this lady sees him and stretches out her hand and offers an apple. And when he looks up at her, he notices she looks very different. She's got a face that is unlike any other he's seen before. This is a woman from the margin of society. And what that scene does is it really foreshadows what he will later do in opening his life to all those people who become a part of the circus, right? These are two, two people who had been on the outs, who were unwanted, unwelcome, not good enough, but then find a family and a purpose and something greater in the circus. And you know, actually, um, we could show that picture of, of all the folks from the movie in the circus. Some of those people were based on folks who were actually in Barnum and Bailey's cir circus. Uh, some of them were additions, but like uh, there is, you know, the, the, the bearded lady. There's the woman who has albinism. There's the 500-pound man. There's the dog boy, as he's called. There's the tattoo guy who is head to toe covered in tattoos. There are the trapeze artists who were born the wrong color in the 19th century. All of these people end up finding a family and a home uh, in the circus. And it's just a beautiful part of this movie. It's a, it, it's, it's a beautiful um, message of inclusion and love for those who had not experienced that before in their lives. Now here, here's um, the parallel I want to draw for you. The thing that I want you guys to see in Christian faith that I bet a lot of us are unaware of, and it's this. Did, did you guys know that in some ways uh, the, the story of a people who were unwanted, unwelcomed, and not good enough, but get then included in something bigger is, is for many people, the story of their inclusion in the first Christian church. This was the story of a lot of people who became part of the early church in, in the first century. And we know that historically. There, there is historical ev evidence for this. Uh, Christ Christianity grew very quickly early on among all people in all strata of society. But some of its greatest gains were from those people who were on the margins, people who were on the outs, who had been previously unwelcomed and unwanted before. Like, for instance, uh, do you know that in the first couple of generations of the Christian church, there were literally generations of orphans who had been picked off the street and included in the family of God because the, the Christian church for the first time had seen their lives as being valuable, right? That, that's a big part of the story of the early church. Did you know that uh, because there wasn't a social netting like we have today in, in the American uh, in, in America, that there were uh, like orphans, a lot of widows who whose husbands had died, whose family weren't around anymore, and who found a home in the church when they believed the gospel, and a family of people who suddenly took care of them when they had not been taken care of before. Uh, do you, there, there were higher proportions of women in the early church than there was in general society because the church elevated the position of women compared to the position that they had in a lot of ways in the Greco-Roman world around them. Uh, you you may, probably don't know that actually um, in the early church there was a higher, uh, uh, there was great growth among first century slaves. Because in the church, even though these people had a different position in the social world around them, 
when they became part of God's family, there, it was equal footing beneath the cross of Jesus. Everybody was on the same plane. And, and, so, and so the church was made up of, of all kinds of these people. And I, I just think it's really important to say this uh, because we, we kind of lose sight of it today. But it is our Christian theology that was at the heart of that reality in the early church. It's our beliefs that made that what it was, right? It's because Jesus looked at every single human being and saw them as a child of God with sacred work that the early church did the same. The gospel was for everyone, and the church, therefore, included every single person. And while that idea is really not that revolutionary uh, to people who are alive today, I want to tell you, it was absolutely a game-changer in the first-century world. Universal human rights was first a Christian idea long before it was ever the accepted standard globally. And, 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 and that is because of our theology. The, the reality is, is that these Christian ideas have actually changed our world, right? There, there's a historian named Rodney Stark who um, wanted to study how Christianity grew so fast. And, uh, and he actually became a Christian after doing this research, which is really pretty incredible. Uh, but he asked the question in a book that he wrote, like, how did the obscure marginal Jesus movement peacefully become the largest religion in the Roman Empire in just a few centuries, right? And one of the primary answers that he, ans that he gave historically was this simple fact that the early Christians included people whom others had left out, right? That, that's part of our history. And, and it really parallels some of the message of inclusion and love that was right there uh, in, in, in The Greatest Showman as part of Barnum's story, as part of the people in the circus. Here's another thing, though, that I want you to recognize as well. It wasn't just that the early church included people who had before been excluded, it was actually also the experience of many in the early church that when they became a part of the early church, those who had before been included were now excluded. Okay, so, so just to say that in another way, because that may not have been clear at all, when early Christians made Jesus their highest hope and actually changed their lives, didn't matter what part of society they came from, those changes made them very different from those around them, peculiar and frankly even annoying to the world that they lived in. They had a different social ethic, which guided the way that they interacted with people and cared about others in society whom, whom everybody else had been able to shrug off before. They had religious convictions that were deeper than the cultural you know, practices of pagan world that they lived in. And so they didn't participate in things that everybody else wanted them to do, right? They had a different sexual ethic, which ran against the grain of those around them and, uh, and wasn't very welcome. Early Christians treated money differently, which affected the bottom line of local economies. And none of these things were, were very uh, loved by the world around them as, as they gained steam. And so when a person was publicly made a, made a public profession of faith and was baptized into the early church, right, suddenly they, they had a very different experience of reality, right? They had friends who wouldn't talk to them anymore. They had families that disowned them. They had businesses that lost all their business. They, they, they were shunned. And, uh, and it was a very real part of their reality. At worst times, 
Like, we know that early Christians were beaten, they were jailed, they were killed because of their differences, and and at the worst time, they were scapegoated for other social ills in the Roman Empire and and went through horrible persecution, right? And, and, And so this is a part of the early Christian story as well, but here's what I want you to see. Uh, you know, most of the Bible was written to that persecuted Christian community. And, uh, and at a time when we know things were especially bad, the, the book of First Peter, Peter has some really incredible words that speak to some of these themes in The Greatest Showman and also actually kind of uh, help us to see something more that, that I'm really interested in this morning. But the, these are, are God's words to a beaten, battered people, disliked and unwelcomed by most of those around them. This this is, this is what, what he says. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you, meet, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received Mercy. I want to read that again. It's short. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there, there are really two things that I, I really want us to see in this passage. And, and here's the first. It's that these are words, these are beautiful words of encouragement and affirmation and love to a people that really, really needed to hear them, right? And this was something that, that, that was the clarion call of the, of the early church. What God did for us in Jesus Christ was God's choosing of us for all time. And though your life may be in terrible trial right now, though you might feel on the outs, what you need to know, what you cannot forget, is how God sees you, right? Is is who you actually are. And who you are is chosen. You you have been chosen in Jesus. You are God's special possession. You are are so loved. You You have a purpose. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation set apart in this world, and don't let what you're going through right now cloud your vision of that, right? This is true of you, and it's always true. And I just, I just think that church, um, this is one of the most precious promises that we have. Is it not? Isn't this something that, that, that speaks to our hearts and something that God gives us as part of the gospel to speak to, to everyone's hearts, that, that no matter how on the outs we feel, like, from whatever position we came from, we are still loved. Like, God's heart towards us doesn't change. Uh, I, I want to tell you, if that is something that, that isn't at the core of who you are and your faith, right, get, get it there. Uh, do whatever you can to, to know that you are chosen, that you're loved, that you're God's special possession. I, I would suggest memorizing this verse. Get a card this week and write 1 Peter 2 through 9 on it. And, and every time, you know, you enter into a trial and you are, are tempted to doubt that love 
or, or you cycle in, a, in, in, in some pain, pull that card out and read that verse. Remember, that is who you are. When you are experiencing pain, remember how God sees you. We've got to get that into the core of our being. And, uh, and, and it's just a, a, such an important part of the gospel, okay? Now, here's the other thing that I want you to see in, in this passage. Because uh, it's, it's more than just our 21st century message of inclusion. There's more going on here, and I and I, I and I and I really want you to see it. And actually, the greatest showman, um, uh, P.T. Barnum, actually stumbles into it. So I want to show you this clip. So that is uh, the scene where P.T. is building the circus, and he finds out about this fellow named Charles Stratton, who who later becomes known as Tom Thumb, and. Uh, he didn't do so well on his first interaction with Tom Thumb, did he? <laughs> not, not at all. Uh, he comes up to him and, and recognizes that he has this significant difference in who he is. And, uh, you know, Tom Thumb says, people are going to laugh at me. And he says, well, they're already laughing. Why don't you get paid for it? And, you know, Tom's very reasonable response to that is, to look at him, to turn around, go back into his room, and shut the door, right? And, and I, uh, I, I want to point out, like, Tom Thumb has been hurt before. Charles knows what pain is from his difference. He's been laughed out before. He, he's not interested in having that experience repeated. So Barnum doesn't do anything helpful at all by, by trying to, in his first initial attempt with him. And, and, and what Tom Thumb did in walking back and closing the door to this possibility that Barnum is putting before him is actually what all of us do when we are presented with the reality of pain again. Like th this is how we respond to pain in our lives. When you have an experience where you're unwanted or excluded, what, what do we do the next time we are encountering a situation where we might have that experience again? We avoid it. We walk away from it. We, we, don't, we don't want uh, that thing repeated that was so terrible the first time, right? And it doesn't matter what possibilities are there in front of us. If we are most worried about that pain, what, what you're going to do, what, it's just our nature, is we will walk back into whatever room we're hiding in, and we'll shut the door on the possibility of pain. Our, our fear of pain will limit our, our future, and that's just human nature. And I've done that. I bet many of you have done that. Uh, I bet some of you are doing it right now. And if you are, uh, I want to say I understand. But I think the question that's really important is, is how, do we, how do we break that fear? Right? How do we find the courage to step into the possibility, even with the reality of, of pain? And this is what I think Barnum uh, unintentionally kind of stumbles into, right? So he has this first failed attempt, but he, he tries something different then, right? He says to Tom, he says, when I see you, I see a general riding across the stage with a sword and a gun, in the most beautiful uniform ever made, right? There, that's different than what he said before. There's some dignity in there. There's something exciting in there. He says, people will come from all over the world to see you. And what's the purpose for them seeing you? Not to laugh, Barnum says. Uh, they'll salute you, right? 
And when he says that, what does Tom Thumb do, right? He's got the door open and he cracks a smile and enters into a new possibility in his life that was never there before. And, uh, and, and Barnum doesn't realize this, but he's really keying into something that is so important, right? When we are looking at the possibility of pain, the way that we overcome that fear is by seeing a bigger picture, is by getting a vi- bigger vision of what is possible for our lives, of what can be done through that pain. And when Tom Thumb has a vision of dignity and hope and excitement for his life, it's then that he's able to look at what's going on right now and say, I'm willing to step into the possibility of pain. Notice that Barnum doesn't say that's going to go away. He just gives him a better picture than the reality he's living right now. And that's when Tom Thumb is willing to open the door. And I would suggest that it's the exact same experience for us in our lives when we are limiting ourselves because of whatever fears are driving us back into the room of our life. We're not going to be willing to step out until we can see a picture of a bigger, better future in front of us. And I want to tell you, this is actually what I think Peter is doing also in this scripture as he's speaking to these early Christians who are experiencing pain, right? This is not just a word of love and affirmation and encouragement. There's something more going on in this scripture, and it's woven into the passage, and you may not have even understood it when you first read it, just like I didn't, but I want to read it for you again. Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, and then, and then this is the part that's important, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, right? So, so, so it really answers the question, why, right? You, you're God's chosen people. You are deeply loved by God, but look at what God wants to do with it, Right? He wants you to tell the story of how you, who were in darkness, were now called into this marvelous light and included in the very family of God, right? You who were once a people, who were on the outs, are now included in this bigger thing that God is doing in the world through the gospel. You who did not receive mercy have now been included in the very mercy of God, which is changing your life. This is is Peter saying, yes, you're experiencing pain, but there's possibility in this pain for the gospel, right? And that really becomes clear as he continues and speaks to these same people who, who have experienced horrible trials in, in the next verses. Let me, let me just continue and read on in the very next verse, verse 11, where he says this, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Right, so, so, you know, uh, what is so interesting about this passage is, is while Peter is, is sharing with these early Christians who are hurting, he's saying, you are loved. God is for you. I want to affirm you in what you're experiencing. He's also now saying something more than that. He's saying, actually, this experience that you're having of exclusion and being unwelcomed and unwanted because you align your life with Jesus, that's what you should expect as a Christian. 
That is part of who you are. This is part of the deal when you followed Christ. And, and, and actually, the way that that comes out most clearly is in the words that Peter uses to try to help the early Christians understand who they are, right? These two words, foreigners and exiles. Peter says, dear friends, I urge you, this is how I want you to think about yourself. You are a foreigner and you're an exile in this world. And I just thought about this. If I was to get to choose anybody who I wanted to be in, in a given society, right, I am pretty sure neither foreigner nor exile would be at the top of that list, right? It might be okay to be a foreigner when, like, you're on vacation in Cancun, right? But uh, being a foreigner where people are looking at you and knowing that you're different and really not interested in you is a whole different experience, right? Exile is, is a term used for people who lived in one place and, and were forced out of it. Who, who, who wanted to be somewhere and because of war or because of famine uh, no longer get to live there. These are not words that we would be choosing to identify our location in society as Christians. And yet Peter here is saying to the early Christian community who is being persecuted at this very moment, this is who you are. This is how you are to understand who you are. You're a foreigner in an, in an exile. Your life is supposed to be different from those around you. You are, are going to experience unwantedness and unwelcomeness because of those differences. And, and, and embrace that. Expect to be people on the outs because God is able to change hearts and minds because you uh, abstaining from sinful desires avoid those things and will live such good lives that though the pagans, even though they don't like you, cannot deny how good you are and they'll see God and glorify him in heaven. It's all about sharing the gospel. And, um, and I won't dwell on it today, but I, I do think it's worth saying this morning, one of the takeaways from this passage for each and every one of us is, is that if we're a Christian, like if Jesus is our highest hope in this world, we are foreigners and exiles here too, right? Our lives are supposed to look different from, from people who do not follow Christ around us. Our lives need to look different. Our lives ought to look different. Jesus-loving people are different from the non-Jesus-loving people in the world around them. And that's true even in the belt buckle Bible uh, state of Texas, right, where we pray before football games. I want to tell you, it might be more true in a place like Texas because the differentiations aren't always as, as clear. And, and, and we just have to learn, like Peter is urging these early Christians, to embrace that difference, to live into that difference, because it's when we're able to, to understand who we really are that, that God's able to move the gospel forward through our lives. And you know, there are some parallels to that in the movie. They're not exactly the same, but I, I will tell you uh, this, this song, uh, This Is Me, right? Where the bearded lady learns to use her incredible singing voice and not be as scared of that difference, but, but sing for, for, for her place in the circus. Like that's the story of somebody who comes to terms with their difference in their life and uses it for a, an incredible thing. Think about this guy, Tom Thumb, right? Here's, here's a, a, a man who is so different but is, fine, is able to find a place of dignity and purpose as he inspires people 
through his role in the circus. Think, think about the central character of this movie, P.T. Barnum. If, if you know the rest of the story, this is a guy who forever wants to be accepted as a legit entertainer and goes down the wrong paths until he finally comes back around, sees who he is as a leader of the circus, and, uh, and is able just to embrace that role. And wh what, I, what I want to tell you guys is, is that when we embrace uh, the difference that Jesus makes in our lives, who, who we are made to be when we offer those things to God and say, God, what do you want to do with this for your glory? That is really when God can do marvelous things through our lives. So let me just leave you with this thought, and I'll tell one more story to close. The, the thing that makes you different uh, might be the thing that God wants to use for furthering the gospel. The very place of pain in your life, the thing that makes you the most, uh, that sticks out like a sore thumb to you, that you see may be the thing that, that you need to offer up to God and say, God, what do you want to do with this to further the gospel, right? Uh, here's, um, I, I, I made a friend about five years ago in a fellow named Brian Mercer. And um, he's actually become a pretty good friend. And I, I kind of hope that one, one Sunday he's able to come here and meet you guys. And if he does, when you meet him, you're not going to notice anything unusual or different about this fellow at all. He's a middle-aged guy, married, got a couple of kids, you know, receding hairline. I love Brian. He's got a Louisiana accent. He lives in Minden, Louisiana. And, um, and uh, Brian uh, is just a normal old dude, old dude. And when you go to shake his hand, you're, you're just going to think he's a normal guy until he stretches out his hand and you see that, that he's got a deformed arm. He has a, a hand because of a condition as a child that didn't fully develop. And although he gave me a story about uh, a run-in with an alligator when I first met him, uh, that's the reality that you'd actually find out. I love that about Brian. And, and what's interesting is while I, the first time, went to shake his hand, was kind of you know surprised and alarmed. I didn't know exactly what to do in that moment. Uh, Brian was actually expecting it. He was waiting for it because he has a different way that he understands this thing that's in his life. Uh, this, as you can imagine, was not something that Brian liked as, as a young man. This was an incredible difference in his life. It kept him from doing things that other kids did in playing sports. People made fun of him. He had a lot of hurt and pain in this. And even now, he will tell you, he looks forward to the day when, when we have a resurrected body and he will have a fully functioning arm because of the gift that God gave us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? That is part of his hope that I think he understands in a way that a lot of us don't. Um, but, but what he, he discovered as he kind of worked through accepting this reality about himself is that it actually was a way that he was able to talk to other people about God's love. And, and, and he would share his story, and people would really kind of come to see the gospel in a new way. And so Brian, as a young man, started traveling from youth group to youth group and sharing his story and, and seeing people's hearts and minds change. And, and, and Brian now understands that his, his deformity in his arm 
is, is not what he wanted, but a tool for sharing the gospel. And this guy is, is a preacher. That's why I became his friends. He is the pastor of First United Methodist of Minden, Louisiana. And I really do hope that one day he comes here uh, and is able to visit with all of us. He's a great guy. But uh, I just, I just want to leave you with this, right? Is there some place in your life where you could think where it could be like Brian? Could God use you like he uses Brian? Uh, if there's a place where we feel different or for some reason feel unwanted or unwelcomed, I think maybe some of the things that God could do most powerfully through our lives is through that exact place of pain. Right? And I hope you guys would consider that. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, I, I just want to thank you for uh, your, your word to us in the Bible. I, want, I just want to thank you for how, how good you are to us, that when we are hurting, uh, when we feel unwelcome and not good enough, Lord, that there's always that voice of love and inclusion, and that in, in your church, we get to be a part of a family that is where, where our membership is never threatened, where you chose us once and for all through Jesus. I, I also pray, Lord, that in hearing the stories of people like Brian, you would inspire our hearts to, to follow you, to do the things that you're calling us to do, even if that is in a great place of, of pain. Lord, would we be able to use uh, what you've given us, the, the, our fate in life, for furthering the gospel and changing the eternal fates of others so that they would come to know Jesus and the hope that we have in him. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.